Be Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Everybody, Doc Brian here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Today, I have with me Michaela McAllister. Did I say that right? McAllister. McAllister. Yeah. <laughs> like the deli. McAllister's yes. deli. Okay. Uh, and she is here to share with us her story. Um, and I, I'm I'm come in contact with you through the Arkansas Foster and Adopt support page. Is that where we got in contact? Yes. Or- um, I have a, a good family friend of mine, uh, Jan Park. She's on that page. And she, she sent me your request and um, kind of flagged it for me to mm-hmm. see if I would be interested in it. So, sure. Yeah. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. And uh, uh, my son is adopted. So we have been through the whole, which I call a broken system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it's always encouraging to hear uh, other people's stories and how everything worked out for them. So tell us, were you born here in central Arkansas? Where were, where were you born? Yes, I was born in Benton, raised in Benton, Saline County. <laughs> All right. And Saline County is the county you do not want to speed through because you will get a ticket. Oh, right. Um, oh, you don't know that. <laughs> I'd say the the North Little Rock police up here are a little harsher. <laughs> well, uh, maybe you just shouldn't speed. Maybe that's maybe that's the thing. Um, so, growing up there, what was life like growing up in in Benton? I, I kind of have my life kind of mapped out from like age stages because it was so drastically different at times. Um, you know, just from growing up in a in a world where there were a lot of drugs and a lot of abuse and then getting into the foster care system. So um, I guess we could kind of, is it okay if we kind of go through it like that? Sure, sure. So what's the earliest memory that you have? My earliest memory, it's so funny um, how memory and trauma work together. Mm-hmm. It really is. And I've, I've been with several therapists just kind of mapping that out in my brain. People who haven't experienced a lot of trauma in their childhood, like the things they remember, like the name of their first grade teacher, you know, like just little stuff like that, completely blank for me, Mm -hmm. completely blank. But I have these memories of trauma that have replaced them because that's how my brain has prioritized things. Um, So my earliest memories, that's how I associate with my mother. Um, My mother, she kind of dropped out of my life when I was around five. My dad got full custody of me. So my earliest memories are kind of with my mom. She was around 19 when she had me. And she was addicted to drugs, and so was my father at the time. And so they had just a really hard time when they first had me, you know, financial struggles and social struggles, just everything put together. I do have some good memories, you know. Like I have memories of playing outside with my brother, or we would go and we would pick blackberries Mm -hmm. on the bushes outside of our house. Yeah. Um, But And as I've gotten older, I've learned how to really associate my memories and like what was really going on, like create a narrative. Cause when you're young, you don't understand a lot of what's going on. Absolutely. As I got older, you know, I realized, you know, we were picking blackberry bushes 
while we were walking to the drug dealer's house. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, like those things kind of start to click for you. But um, there's kind of this narrative that children don't really understand uh, drug abuse or don't really understand abuse in general. But that is so false. You know, children have hearts as well. They know what's going on. They can feel the energy. They can feel, you know, strained relationships. And so I had a pretty good understanding of everything that was happening when I was younger. What are some memories? I remember when I was probably three or four, I fell down um, a couple steps. And my mother asked me if I would pretend that my arm was broken so that she could take me to the hospital and get opioids. Oh, wow. And, you know, I remember the police outside of my house arresting my parents. I remember being in Walmart, standing outside of the bathroom stall for hours while my mother was using drugs in the bathroom. And, you know, I might have not known that she was shooting heroin, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, but I knew that she was doing it wasn't normal. She was doing something wrong. So you you mentioned a brother. Is he a younger brother than I assume? Yes, he is a younger brother. He is about three years younger than me. Okay. Mm-hmm. So so growing or being born into a family where there's drugs, was there any type of reactive attachment or or alcohol syndrome that 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 you now know of that was there for you? See. I'm not really sure for me. My parents swear by the book that um, my mother did not do hard drugs when she was pregnant with me. I don't know how true that is. <laughs> mm. I um, I know that she smoked marijuana. I know that she smoked cigarettes and all those things when she was pregnant with me. But um, I haven't really been affected by it. My brother has ADHD, mm-hmm. and that may be a symptom. Um, but, you know— Honestly, I think it's just a miracle (laughs) that I am the way that I am. Not like that I'm not, you know, disabled or that I don't have some kind of, you know, severe psychological issues because knowing the amount of drugs that my parents were ingesting at that age, I'm sure there was something going on. Yeah. And and you mentioned it's it's funny how our brain categorizes trauma Mm -hmm. and that we remember certain bits and pieces. And and then as we get older, we look back and go. That was that was traumatic, mm-hmm. but we, you know, in those moments, we just kind of remember the good things, and that's you know one of the problems with people that that face trauma as children is when they get older, sometimes uh, these feelings manifest out of nowhere, and now you're left to deal with uh, what is going on around you that you may not even really remember, mm-hmm. uh, and then going into therapy and really talking through you know, life and going back and recalling these memories, just like you said, you realize all of a sudden that's not normal. You know, yeah. that's that's not what should have been happening. There's there is no good explanation for why your mother would turn around and ask you, should we run or should we stop? Mm-hmm. Um and so it just it's it's kind of it really is unique, I guess is the best word of how our brain uh just packets some of those memories in, in different ways. So as as now you have, you're growing up, your brother is with you. Do, did you have another sibling? Um, I did have a sister um, when I was younger. She was about 10 months younger than me, but uh, she died when she was an mm. infant. When she was about 10 months old, um, she passed away. Okay. Can you, was it like natural causes? Was, do you know? Um, it was SIDS. She passed okay. away in her crib. 
that was the first experience that I kind of had with um, the foster care system and with DHS because after my sister passed away, there was an investigation on my parents to try to figure out what happened. And, you know, at that time, uh, my brother and I were staying with my aunt, my mom's sister. And so that was really the first experience I had. But because we were in that kind of kinship and we were able to stay with someone who was close to us and because I was so young, I don't really remember it very well. Right. That's a really important piece of my story because of the way that it impacted my parents. Um, you know, when my sister passed away, it was extremely hard for both of my parents. I can only imagine what it feels like to lose a child. It kind of had a different effect on each of my parents. Seeing my sister pass away took my mother to an even darker place, to a really, really hard place. And that's when her drug problem became uncontrollable. And then for my father, um, I don't know the the whole narrative because I was so young, but I think that that was kind of a wake up call for him in some way that he needed to be better for his kids and to kind of start to get back on track. I can't imagine losing a child and, and I don't want to imagine how that must feel, but any type of major traumatic life event, most of the time we get to choose okay, am I going to really let this kind of wake me up and, you know, try to do better? Or am I just going to kind of go into a deep, dark depression and not get any help and and just keep going down? And it sounds like your mother, uh, which she already had drug problems to begin with, mm-hmm. um, that she just kind of let that take her down. You mentioned that you were kinship placed with an aunt. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in the state of Arkansas, and I, I don't know how it is in other states, but in the state of Arkansas, we have kinship placement. But in order to be placed with a kin folk, which is where that that terminology comes, that child must have had regular interaction with that person. There are many judges now in the state of Arkansas that will not allow kinship placements because there is no guarantee that the parent or the abuser will not be allowed to be with them because the kinship placement is family. What? How do you feel about, about that? I think that it's absurd to assume that because one person in the family has a drug problem, you know, everyone is going to fall to these standards. Uh, my aunt, you know, she was, she was a really positive influence in my life. And the only reason that I wasn't with her long term is because she – didn't want to be halfway into motherhood. You know, she she could have been my mom. She could have adopted me. She could have raised me. But she would always have her sister, you know, that's my kid. That's mm-hmm. my kid. So I can see why it can be kind of a sticky situation. But I think it's better to put a child in a situation that they're familiar with. Sure. Absolutely. So you mentioned how your mother just kind of got darker in a, mm-hmm. in a worse place. Did she resolve from that or, or did it just, she come back and be worse or what transpired there with your mother at that point? I think honestly, I don't know if it was more of her going into a darker place or more of my dad getting out of it. Because what ended up happening is shortly after my sister died, uh, my parents divorced And there was a custody battle, and then my dad got full custody of me. When I was around five years old is when I stopped having contact with my mother until my teen years when I wanted to reach out to her and see how she was doing. So, you know, I 
had absolutely no contact after this certain amount of time, you know, any kind of coping mechanism, whether it's you're addicted to drugs or you're addicted to alcohol or you're addicted to eating, you know, you can be addicted to just about anything. You're trying to numb. You're trying to numb those feelings instead of go through them. And when you have this this base layer of trauma and then, you know, you have a bad relationship and you make some bad decisions there, there's more trauma. And this trauma just keeps building and building and building until it's a skyscraper. And that's why it's so hard for people to get off of drugs is because when you stop numbing it, you don't get to just face that skyscraper, punch it, and then it'll go away. You have to go layer by layer by layer. And so with every layer there is, it's harder. puts you in situations where you're more susceptible to more trauma. Yeah. Addicts, uh, typically, they quit because they have to. Mm-hmm. not because they really want to. And, you know, as I, I tell people, you know, those that are alcoholics or, or drug users, it's only numb when you're high or it's only numb when you're drunk. And if you stay drunk or uh, high all the time, you have no quality of life. And more often than not, they're making everybody else around them just as miserable as, as they are. My parents, they were very off and on, off and on, off and on. And what happened was I went back with, I think my mom had primary custody at the time, and then it was joint custody. Later, my my dad wanted full custody and then took my mom to court for full custody. Do you recall any of that back and forth uh, between your mom and dad in the court? And uh, did you have to go to court and testify? You know, there's a, a lot of things that surround custody hearings. For a while, it was my dad had met a new woman. And so it was he was with her and then he was with my mom and then he was with her and then he was with my mom. And it was kind of back and forth for a while until eventually everything was final with my mom and he um, was with her primarily. And that's when the custody battle really heated up and my mom started to lose custody. You know, especially when it's a mother it's it's hard to take a child away completely from their parent. It's really hard to get full custody as a father. Absolutely, it's extremely hard. It's, it's rare. Yes, very rare. very rare. But you know, I would I would come to my dad's house with lice. Mm. He would fix it. I'd go back and come back to my dad's house with lice. You know, I'd be sleeping at random people's houses while my mom was partying. There was a lot there against her, and my dad was kind of starting to get more stable while she was still in the mix of it. Yeah. Not a couple of weeks ago, I was at Walmart out on McCain and uh, was buying some things. And I saw, which, you know, there's a police officer there all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the loss prevention was escorting this lady. And she had a son with her, I assume, that he may have been five years old. And uh, they arrested her for shoplifting. And I'm going, you know, if you're going to shoplift, at least leave your kid somewhere. Yeah. You know, and I just, but to me, I can't even fathom that, that mm-hmm. I can't fathom that I would shoplift, let alone that I would do it with my six-year-old with me uh, to do that. But it, it sounds like that even even before the split up that your mother was doing those kind of things. She was involving you and presumably your brother uh, along with these antics that she was, she was oh, doing. Yeah. I remember... She'd have me squeeze through the window of a house to break into it. Oh, my goodness. Pull the pull the window up with a credit card. I squeeze through and go unlock the door for her. I just, I can't even imagine. So now your dad has custody. Mm-hmm. 
you move in completely, I guess, with your father. Is that where the communication stopped with your mom? But that, yeah, that's around the time I stopped communication with my mom. What ended up happening is um, slowly my dad started to get primary custody. I want to say around five or six is when my dad got full custody and then I stopped seeing my mom. I think it was 11 years before I ever contacted her again. Mm. Uh, My dad was very adamant about keeping her away. Uh, For good reasons. Yeah, for good, (laughs) good reasons. I know that she would come and try to bring us presents and he would say, no, like go away. <laughs> or he, you know, she'd try to call us. And what happened, especially for my mother, I think is she was just kind of mentally stunted when she started doing drugs. And so even though she was getting older and having kids and getting married, she was still in the mindset of a 13 year old. That was around the time that she was completely shut out of my life. And it was just dad and then new stepmom. But it it wasn't something that your dad said, hey, you're not going to talk to her anymore. Or did it start with her just not calling and connecting and then your dad was protecting you from that? Um, I'm not sure exactly how the whole story goes. They both have different narratives. Mm. Um, They both have different narratives on just about anything. (laughs) Right. Now you're full custody with your dad. You have a stepmother Mm -hmm. now. Uh, Did you have then step-siblings? I had a stepbrother, yes. Okay. Was he older or younger? He was older. He's about three, three years older than me. Okay. And what was that like? During the custody battle and everything, everything was kind of moving smoothly. They ended up getting married, and then she adopted my brother and I. So we were like legally all a family. She was my mom. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was kind of like we were a family unit. My, my name was changed. They changed my middle name, and, um, you know, I so- had— not just your last name. They changed your middle name? Yeah, they changed my middle name. Was there an association to that name with your mother? Um, my stepmom wanted all of her kids to have their middle name start with the letter R. She changed the spelling of my first name as well. And, and how old were you then? I was about seven. Wow. Yeah. So they got married. My it's name a was changed. Narcissistic a little bit. Yeah, I would say so as well. Yeah. <laughs> but so they changed my, my whole name. She was my new mom. She adopted me. And we were like to the outside world, perfect little family. Everything was legally put together. And for a little bit, it, it went well. But then um, as I got older, there, w- there was a lot of resentment towards me from my stepmom. And, you know, this is kind of the part of my story that I see as being the most traumatic a lot of times with kids, it's really hard to express psychological and emotional emotional abuse. It's we don't give kids the tools mm. to express those things. Yeah. Um, the the best I could articulate as a child what was happening in my home is that my mommy's mean to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't articulate the fact that I was being abused. She was probably the hardest part of my story. And and we talked about this just a minute ago, the things that you kind of filter out when you're a kid. Because you feel the emotions. You feel whether or not you're loved, whether or not someone's there. You don't see, hey, my mom's running away from the cops. We could get shot right now. (laughs) You see, hey, I'm hanging out with my mom having a good time. In some ways, um, I would say that my relationship with my stepmom was even more abusive than my relationship with anyone else. And, and, you know, you talked about uh, as children, we're not really given the tools to recognize emotional trauma. Mm -hmm. And 
One thing that we do with adolescents is, well, how do you feel? You know, what do you feel like? Well, they have no idea Mm -hmm. because what they're trying to do is tell you what they're supposed to feel like, not what they actually feel like. And so what happens is that the therapists try to say things like, well, tell me what your favorite all-time movie is. And, you know, mention anything from from Frozen to Snow White, you know, to, to whatever movie. And then we will ask them, at what point in that movie did you feel like the character felt the way you feel right now? And when they're able to associate that, then they can communicate. And I sure, uh, which I don't want to spill the beans, but you being a school teacher, mm-hmm. you know that behaviors are words that the kids are trying to tell you something in these behaviors. It's not just, hey, I'm going to be I'm going to be rude because I want to be rude. There is a reason behind everything that we do. And so, yeah, I, and I don't know the answer mm-hmm. to that. Uh, I do know with my son, he has, I don't know if you've seen them. They were popular on TikTok for a while. They're the octopus and they're a smiley face, and then you turn them inside out, and they're a sad face. Yeah, I've seen those. So he got one of those, and and I, you know, if he's not happy, he'll flip it over. And I'm going, okay, that's good that you can recognize that you're not happy. However, uh, we need to talk about why you're not happy. You know, it's not just enough to flip a switch and say, oh yeah, well he's mad. We've got to have that conversation about why. And I think so many times as children, that just gets looked over. And I really think that for when it gets looked over in the home, because most parents nowadays were, were taught, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. And, and we're just kind of pushed to the side. And in schools, I, schools are so understaffed that, that I don't think that a lot of that attention is given where it needs to be given. We have these raw emotions, and we don't know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm sure that's the way, way you felt. And in maybe, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth here, but maybe at some point you felt like that was normal, like mm-hmm. this abuse that you were getting was what you're supposed to be getting. You know, when I was younger, a lot of it, my stepmom would pit me and my father against each other. So how did that affect your and your dad's relationship? Well, my dad and I really didn't have much of a relationship for a lot of my childhood. He was there. He lived in the home, but he worked constantly. And, you know, my stepmom tried her hardest to keep us away from each other. So you have a you have a mother who is obsessive uh, in a narcissistic dependent way. And then there are some some traumas that take place, some abuse that takes place that ultimately ends with DHS removing you from the home. So what happened, you know, I stayed in that home for a while and, you know, there was there was some other instances and it, it really just started to get bad. Their relationship was was never great. They they fought a lot. You know, when they would fight, she would come to me and this is your fault. We're fighting about you. You know, everything's your fault. Whether they were or not. Whether they were or not, yeah. And so they were kind of on the brink of getting a divorce. And it's easier to remember that period of time in my life because I was starting to get older. You know, I was, I was about to turn 10, 11, 12. This is what's going on in these in these years. And so um, I remember I would be in my room um, and late at night, the 700 Club would come on. Mm-hmm. 
And I remember listening to all these amazing stories of people who were in terrible situations and, and pray about it and God will get you out and pray about it and God would get you out. So, I mean, from that period on, I will say I probably have prayed every single night of my life. <laughs> mm. Just I remember just like pleading, like, God, help me. What is wrong with me? Like, help me get out of this situation. I don't know what to do. And so that's where I was. I was scared of my stepmom. I was scared of my brother. I was I was scared of my dad because he would have outbursts. And I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Mm. When I turned a little bit after I turned 12, he and my dad and my stepmom got a divorce. That's when we kind of exited that situation. What ended up happening is we reversed the adoptions. My brother and I were under full custody of my dad. And I've then, never heard of that happening. You've never heard of that? Never heard of it. No, reverse. that is possible. You can reverse adoptions. Wow. So we reversed the adoptions on both sides. My stepbrother was hers now, and, and we were my dad's. And, and it's kind of funny because we only had my dad on our birth certificates because my, my mom, her, term, her rights had been terminated. Right. And then my stepmom reversed the adoption. So now we just had dad on the mm -hmm. birth certificate. And, but my dad, um, moved directly into another relationship. So there was another woman involved immediately. So uh, there, it would be safe to say there was a lot of identity crisis going on without even realizing there's an identity crisis going on of who am I? Right. Um, and with your stepmom constantly berating you, you thinking, well, I feel this this way, but this is she says I'm this way, and so I could only imagine there was a constant internal conflict as to what you were supposed to do, not just mm -hmm. who you were supposed to be, but what you're supposed to do. I've had I've had that internal dialogue since, as far as I can remember, struggling with what am I supposed to do? What's the right thing to do? I never do the right thing, <laughs> you know, like just constants. Do you, do you carry that as an adult? Um, in some situations of my life, in a few situations. Yeah. So, so now you're with your dad into your grandparents' home. Um, what transpires there? This was a very weird point in my life because my dad hadn't been in a close relationship with me for almost my entire childhood because, you know, we were, had the stepmom dominating over everything. And, um, this new relationship with my dad, you know, it felt awesome. Um, I was a little confused at first over whether or not to feel bad, but then it quickly transitioned into, well, my dad's moved on to a new woman. So, you know, I don't have to feel bad anymore. So she was out of my life. I was still dealing with the trauma of course, but they were completely out of my life. And I started to feel what it was kind of like to be a normal person. You know, my dad enrolled me in a new school. And so it, it felt really good for a while. Friends were able to come over to my house, which I thought was absolutely crazy. Because I just, I just assumed I couldn't do anything. I never asked for anything because the answer was always no. So, you know, I was like, oh my goodness, this is awesome. Like my life is totally different now you know, started hanging out with friends and started getting interested in boys and everything was great for a while until I realized that it wasn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what ended up happening was they were together for about a year before things started going downhill. And my dad took a six month period off of work because his best friend was diagnosed with cancer. 
And um, this was my uncle. We grew up with him. Uh, we went on fishing trips all the time. He didn't have anyone else really to take care of him. And so we were relying on my stepmom's cosmetology checks while my dad was taking care of his best friend. And he passed away. And my dad relapsed on drugs. And then um, he and my stepmom got divorced because uh, he he was starting to get back into the drugs. So, he, you know, he just lost his best friend. He relapsed. And then now he's divorced. And he turned into a completely different person. And so in the middle of the night, um, I snuck out of my house. So my dad wouldn't hear me. I was terrified that he was going to hear me. Snuck out of my house waited in the police car for hours for the detective to show up, gave my testimony to the detective. And then after that, they pulled my brother and I from the house. And then it was heading on our journey to foster care. So now going into your foster home, your first foster home, what was that like being in a whole new world, presumably? It was really, really weird. <laughs> I remember you know, 14-year-old girl, the first thing she thinks is, well, I had plans to go shopping with my friend tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And now my friend is not going to know what happened to me. Like, she's going to have no idea. We They took us both. And I was shocked at the time. And then that's when it started to hit me. Like, I just made a decision that's going to impact my entire family. Mm -hmm. Like, it hadn't hit me before then. But when they started walking my brother out of the house, I was like, oh, crap. I just did something big. Like, I just changed my life. They get us in the car. They get us to the police department. And, you know, you want to talk about the broken system for a, a little bit. Um, there's a lot of things broken about the system. But I remember uh, we sat, we stayed the night in the police department. Mm -hmm. And then. Which is not uncommon. Not uncommon. No. At all. Not uncommon. But the next day we had to wait for the social worker to come pick us up. And the social worker, first thing they did was took us to the hospital to do an exam. And the abuse that I had described to the detective, my social worker just said right in front of my brother, mm -hmm. just spilled all the beans about every detail of what had just happened right in front of my younger brother, who's 12. And I was like, are you kidding me, lady? Like, are you serious? That is so inappropriate. But um, I could tell she was just annoyed that she had to be up that early, honestly. But um, they took us to the DHS office, and I remember sitting there while she— Phone call after phone call after phone call after phone call. Can you take these two kids? No. Okay, bye. Can you take these two kids? Okay, 14, 12. No. Okay, bye. Just constant. No, 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 no. And, you know, like, I, like I've said before, some things you don't really realize that are wrong until you're older. It's like, I would not want my child sitting there hearing that. Just, I, you know, I'm not going to accept you. I'm not going to accept you. I'm not going to accept you. And um, what ended up happening is they got a hold of a family and they said, you know, we'll take the girl, but we're not going to take the boy. When they came to pick me up, they realized, okay, well, the boy has nowhere else to go. So they went ahead and took my brother with me for short term is what it was supposed to be. And, um, you know, I remember like going to the call house in Saline County. Do you know mm -hmm. much about the call? I do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I remember going to the call house and we, we picked out clothes because we had nothing. We had nothing. I was in my short, short pajama shorts. I remember being so embarrassed because I was meeting all these people in these really short shorts that I had worn as pajamas. Um, but we went and got all of that. And then our direct transition was, okay, a really super traumatic experience to 
okay, come to my house. We're having a birthday party today for my son. And there's a bunch of kids here and we got a bouncy house. And <laughs> so it was definitely a culture shock yeah. to say the least. Yeah. And, and for those who aren't familiar with the call, the call is an adoption coalition uh, here in Arkansas. And what, sh- what you're referring to is a call mall, which mm-hmm. is, has clothes as toys. It has, bassinets and cribs and anything that a foster parent might need for a foster child who is coming into their care. Uh, and we are certainly blessed to have them here, uh, in, in Arkansas. And there, I think there's a call in every County in Arkansas, except for three. So, uh, they, they've sure reached out now, you know, just the, just the sitting there with the social worker and hearing, person after person saying, no, we can't take them. That's, that's enough trauma for anybody to, to really have some even complex PTSD with everything that you've, you've been through. Um, but now in the foster system, did you again feel like your identity had changed? Um, after a while, yes. At first, no. Um, I had two foster homes. I was very, very, very fortunate. My brother did not get so lucky. Mm. He did not get so lucky. So they weren't able to keep you together. They were not. Um, but in my first foster home, I was still very, very, very so much attached to my identity from when I was living at home because it was, and you know, they were nervous. They had never had a foster kid before. Mm. And, and foster care has a lot of rules. It does. Rules that you do not even think about. It does. Like me being, you know, a 15-year-old girl, I can't go to a football game mm-hmm. because I might see a family member. Right. I can't go anywhere, you know, unsupervised. I can't have a cell phone because right. I might contact a family member. And, you know, for the first year and a half, being I can't cut my hair mm-hmm. because my dad didn't give permission. Right. For the first year and a half, I still knew I was very, very, who I was very much so attached to that, that identity of, of where I had grown up. And, um, you know, I, I was with them for a year and a half. And when you're with a family for that long, you really get attached Mm -hmm. every single day, every single day, holidays and everything, you know, and, and they had, uh, three kids and they were all precious and I adored them. Um, but you know, there started to be some problems more towards the end, just with, you know, they, they weren't prepared to take in a case where they're going to have a teenager long term, you know, and um, their kids were all younger. Um, But what ended up happening is I was old enough that I could say where I, what I wanted to do. You know, they asked me. So at that point you were 16? um, 15 to 16, yes. And so they asked me straight up, you know, what, what do you want? And I said, I don't care as long as I'm not with my dad. Mm. You know, I had gone through some trauma in those last few months that I was with him. And I just, I could not see at all me functioning in that household. And so immediately from the beginning, I said, no way, I'm not, I'm not going back. But for my brother, it was different because he didn't experience the abuse that I did. And that's kind of where I started to see the separation of us two. You know, when you're in foster care, they give the the parents about a year is is typical. They they give you all the different standards you have to meet, you know, rehab, um, anger management, therapy, um, all those different things. 
And you either do them or you don't. And my dad didn't. He did not. And um, he ended up losing custody. He lost, he, he lost his parental rights. And so after that, it was me finding a new identity in myself. I'm going to get through. I'm going to get through this. And um, I'm going to go to college. And, you know, yeah. that was my plan. My plan had nothing to do with anything family. I'm done with family. I'm over it. You know, there's nothing good comes out of that. My brother, um, he ended up getting uh, reunified with my my dad's mom, uh, my grandmother. I did not feel comfortable staying there because I knew that my dad was going to be there. Just like you're t- you were talking about earlier with Ken. Right. I, I didn't want to be there. I did not want to be around my father. And so um, after being in several placements, my brother was put into the care of my grandmother, and I was still in care. I was still in foster care. Now, you you mentioned, uh, you said you decided you were going to go to college and that family was bad. You were just going to stay away from family. Uh, Statistically, in the U.S., there there are around 400,000 kids in foster care at any given point in time. And of those kids, when they either emancipate out of the system or they age out of the system, uh, they're a very high, high percentage that either get on drugs, are in prison, have children at a very young age, and then just kind of restart the cycle. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that you had that enough wherewithal at 15, 16 years old mm-hmm. that you were going to do it different? Because I knew the day that I stepped into my first kindergarten class that this was going to be the way out. Mm. I had searched and searched and searched all around my life to try to find something to get me out. And I knew the only way was to do well in that kindergarten class, to make my teacher happy and to go to college. Mm. <laughs> I knew that was the only way. I that's, I always overachieved in school. Mostly because, and you know, I went to, I counted one time, I went to like 11 different elementary schools. Oh, wow. I I found stability in my teachers. I they were the ones who were they were always going to show up to school. They were always going to be fair about discipline. They were always going to grade my work and not manipulate what I said. And so I found coping through school. And the structure. Yes, the structure. You knew what was going to mm-hmm. happen. And I liked the compliments when I did well. You know, you're smart. You're, you know, I I got tested for GT in the second grade, and and after that, it was like a big a big ego boost to a mm-hmm. second grader, but it, it felt. And then you good. go home and get knocked back down. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I knew from a very early age. I always overachieve in school because I recognized that as an escape. That was my escape route. And um, so was it that you had determined you were going to go to college, or that you were going to go to college to become a teacher because that was a safe place. I knew I was going to go to college. Okay. I knew I was going to go to college, get a degree, and make some money and not be living paycheck to paycheck. But you're a teacher, so you're living paycheck yeah, to paycheck. Yeah, we can talk about that <laughs> later. <laughs> so so you, you say, okay, look, this is what I've got to do if I'm going to be successful. Mm-hmm. I know where my safe place is. I've got to get there, which speaks volumes about your ability to, to cope. Because a, a lot of children in that situation wouldn't be looking for the safe place. They would just shut down mm-hmm. you know, or they would act out in other ways. And so when you made that determination and now you're in foster care, 
what happens next? Where, where do you go from there? Are you, are you waiting to just graduate high school mm-hmm. or are you looking for adoption? I was not looking for adoption. Um, I was looking to graduate. I was looking to get out. And, and things did start to change once my dad's rights were terminated because then it was like, okay, you know, the foster family I was li- living with realized, okay, she's not going home, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think that kind of started to have a little crisis there. Cause like I said, they just, they were not ready for a teenager who needed a permanent home, at least until I graduated. Mm-hmm. And so there ended up being some problems because, you know, you, you raise a teenager differently than you raise a nine-year-old. Sure. You sure. know, there's, there's gotta be some more, you know, independence and, and, and they weren't ready to take on, take on the load of a whole nother child. Cause like their children in my foster home, they, they were dance kids. It was, you know, dance tournament and, and, um, dance recitals and, and they didn't feel home, comfortable leaving me at home. So, you know, every day after school I was in dance, I was sitting at dance practice for two hours on the weekends. I was going to Tulsa and sitting in, in the, dance, the dance tournaments, you know, like I, I was there in it, but you know, when it came to what I wanted to do, I didn't feel like it was, it was prioritized. I would not label myself as like a confrontational person or someone who has had like erratic behavior or anything. But like I said, my needs were not being met and it's okay that they couldn't meet meet my needs and they would get frustrated and I would get frustrated. And then me and my foster mom were fighting. And so, you know, we had some confrontation and, and we've talked about it since I've left her home. And I think we both recognize what was going on, but you know, when you're, when you're in a home for a year and a half, you get attached to these people. Sure. And so when they moved you out of that foster home, did did they move you to a pre-adoptive home or did you go to another foster home? What ended up happening is um, it was a miracle that I even got in a home. Mm-hmm. Um, they had another. Yeah, at that age, it's, it's, it's hard. <sighs> yeah. They had another home lined out for me and then there were some problems and my old foster mom had expressed concern to new foster moms. So that didn't end up lining out. And so my next step was going to be a homeless shelter. Mm. or a group home. That was my next step, um, which was really frustrating because I was running for student class president at my high school. <laughs> so so they were at the point of emancipation. I, they were, yeah, it was, we're not in an adoptive state at that point. They, they, they don't want me to, I had already expressed, I don't want to be adopted. It's fine. I'm fine. I just want to go to school. That's mm-hmm. it. And, um, I was like, and preferably I want to go to school here at this high school because I had, I had built roots and I had, you know, built myself up in a way like I have references. Like I, you know, that's a lot of people think of college and, oh, I I should write some scholar. I needed to write those scholarships essays. Mm -hmm. I needed it. And so, um, my priority at the time was I want to stay in my high school. I don't want to go to another high school. So what happened was, um, the leader of the call in Sling County, her name is Julia Descarpentry. Mm-hmm. She is an amazing woman. She reached out to a family, a local family that she knew was fostering, and asked them if they would take me. And they did. And so I moved into that home. And So you went to this family's home that was referred from the call. Yes. And you were presumably there for to be a foster until you aged out, Mm -hmm. but you were adopted. I was, I was adopted. And how did that all transpire? I went in there and I was 
on edge. I had just had a really hard weekend. I felt like a terrible person. Like my foster parents hated me. Like I was in limbo. Nobody knew what to do with me. And I remember walking into the kitchen and my mom now was just like, hey, <laughs> what's up? And, you know, I hadn't seen that kind of positivity in a while. And it was, and, you know, I start trying to explain myself because I'm sure she knows everything. And I don't need to know that. I don't need to know anything about what happened before you walked in this door. You don't have to tell me anything. Here's your room. Let's get you set up. Sorry, I'm going to tear up. <laughs> But I had never experienced that before. Mm -hmm. I had never had somebody tell me, hey, I don't care what has happened. You don't have to explain yourself. You are a person and you are valid and I'm going to take care of you no matter what. And yeah, it was. And that's so liberating. Yeah. And at, But at the same time, scary. Yeah. And so um, I started living there and I started kind of like you know, testing and, and to see kind of how the relationships were going to go. And it's so funny because, you know, they were all in the same town. Everybody knew everybody. And so they had heard about me. My, uh, my brother now had heard about me. He was friends with my old foster sister. Mm -hmm. And so he was hearing stories about me and they tell me now, like they were a little skittish at first mm -hmm. just cause they had heard stories. But after being with me for a month, they were like, okay, y'all are crazy. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with this girl. She's fine. You know, I stayed there and, and I knew I have learned over the years how to put my smiley face on, how to put my head up and get through. And that was my plan when I got there. They took me to get my driver's license. And that was a big deal for me because my old foster family didn't want to teach me how to drive. They said I could get a job. And that was a big deal for me because, heck, yeah, I need to start saving up money for college. Mm. So I remember like I. She just asked me what what I needed at this time and and what I needed was to become start to become independent. You know, I was sixteen, about to turn seventeen at this time, and it was I need to get a driver's license. I need to get a job, and it was okay. Let's do it. <laughs> Not I don't want to share my car with you, or I don't want to have to take you to work every day because there's dance practice after school. It was okay. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, and so that kind of gave you that family structure that you're supposed to have. Mm -hmm. How did the conversation come about for adoption? Well, I had lived there for about a year, and I was about to go to college. I had I'd been accepted to colleges. I had started to get some scholarships and I, I was, you know, I was on my way out. I was picking out my dorm and, um, you know, about to leave and I remember sitting in sitting in church in my youth group at the time we had a little bible study meetings in the morning for your grade and your gender so it was all senior girls and I remember you know my leaders asking about what you know what are your concerns about going to college you know how, how are you feeling about it and I'm just I just thought about it for a second I said where do I go on Christmas mm -hmm. can I stay there can I stay can I stay at my dorm in Christmas or are they gonna kick me out? And I think my um, my youth group leader had a conversation with my my foster parents and um, weeks later they had sat me down and they said, you know you're you, like you're part of the family now like you're you're welcome here whenever like always <laughs> and I was I was like, you know I really I really appreciate that and they um, eventually they were like, 
well, we want to ask you a question. Would it be okay if we adopted you? And I really, really appreciated that. I appreciated that they asked me because, you know, uh, and I, a lot of situations, I think foster kids are kind of seen as like, you know, that's the number one thing. That's, that's all they want. They just, you know, that's what they need. They need you. And they, they met me eye to eye. I see you. I know what you're doing. I know that you have other plans in your life. Is it okay if you join our family? Mm. And I said, yes. And then I remember they called down my brother and sister and they were so excited. They were like, yeah, that that's awesome. I'm going to have a sister. It's a cool story because they got to adopt me the day before I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. The day before I graduated high school. And uh, my mom talked to my principal because, you know, I was going to change my name. And uh, my principal agreed to call my name because it, it hadn't been changed yet. He, he agreed to call my name as Michaela Bond mm. when I got my diploma. And so that was really special. Yeah, I'm just... I'm going to get emotional here. <laughs> I'm not supposed to do this, but uh, wow, just what a story of grace receiving that you didn't even know you deserved or needed, that, that there was this this family who was just open to to do, to step up and fill in the gap and, and, and love you. Mm-hmm. What would you. What would you say to people who may be listening today or children that may be listening that are currently in foster care, what would you say to them? I love my mom and dad. They are not the only family I gained out of this experience. I gained family through the transporter who who drove me back and forth to visitations with my brother. I gained family through the woman who was in charge of the call and saw my struggle and saw what I needed. I gained family through the person who's in charge of the independent living students and who helped me like apply for 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 scholarships and, and apply for college and go pick out stuff for my dorm. I gained family through the other foster kids who I had these classes with. Talk about an identity crisis. Um, I have gone from one life to a completely different other life. And I'm still sometimes stuck in the middle because, you know, like you were talking about earlier, if someone connects to my childhood and connects to my past, odds are, you know, most kids who go through that, they either get pregnant at a young age or they fall to drugs or they they get in these situations. And then, you know, people who are typically in my place of life, they haven't experienced the things that I've experienced. Um, But I I think it's more than just what we have in common. I think it's it's those emotions that you feel. And and if you can connect to people because of the emotions that they have, that's what's important. And you're not alone. Here's one thing that I really want to emphasize too. When I was nine years old watching the 700 Club and praying on my knees desperately that God would help me, you know, I thought, oh, there's no way he's going to help me because he didn't do it the next day. Mm-hmm. But he helped me. He helped me because he had Julia Carpentry working for the call. Mm-hmm. He was setting up a, a place in my parents' heart for me. He was putting together things before I could ever imagine. And prayers aren't, aren't answered the next day, but they will be answered. <laughs> yeah. And 
I think, sorry. You're fine. The, You're fine. One of You're, the most important things. I'm going to have to find the Kleenex in a minute if you keep going. <laughs> But but please do, please do. The most important thing too, especially in the foster care system, especially going through trauma, what happens to you is not who you are. Mm. How you react to what happens to you is who you are. Absolutely. If you react with grace, you're going to get grace. If you react with persistence, you're going to get persistence. You know, if if you're in if you're in a group home and and the people in the group home are not treating you right, you know, are, are you going to react by being tougher and harder and, and beating one up and catching a charge at 14? Or are you going to react by showing love to them? Mm. And, and I've noticed that a lot too, because, you know, God knows I've had, I've had some reactions that were less than perfect, but the reactions are what make you who you are. Yeah. Uh, I find myself often saying your diagnosis is not your identity and what you have done doesn't make who you are. As there are there are some of us that have a colorful past, uh, but we're not those people. You know, we yes, we did those things, but my past doesn't define me. Who I am today defines who I am. Mm-hmm. So to tell the rest of your story, you graduated from college. I did. You're with a history yes. degree. I have a social studies history degree, so um, I'll be teaching. Eighth grade social studies next year, U.S. Gotcha. history. And you recently married. Mm-hmm, I did. And so looking back today, would you have ever imagined at 15, 16 years old that you would be doing what you're doing today? Absolutely. And, and I think that's the key mm-hmm. is that we don't give up, that we have a plan, that we know what we want to do, but... In so many cases, foster kids are just so beat down mm-hmm. and they're so emotionally abused, maybe not even meaning to be by foster parents, mm-hmm. that they just give up hope. And I think that's the difference between your story and the average foster child that may end up in in teen pregnancy or in jail or even the suicide rates among foster children are, are astronomical. And, and I think that we just have to be very careful how we treat each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I try to remember and try to remind myself daily, the way that I treat somebody might determine the rest of their life. Absolutely. There are people who have said one word phrases to me that I have remembered forever. Yeah. Those are the kind of impacts that we make on people, especially in a position like me as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Like they will remember what you say. Absolutely. Well, it's been good to have you with us today, Kayla. And um, what a story. What a story. Um, tell us how could people find you on social media if they wanted to contact you? Um, I am on Facebook, Michaela McAllister. I'm also on Instagram. Um, I think it's Michaela.Leanne16. Um, that's kind of the funny thing, too. I just changed my name for—I've had four names. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, I kept. I was keeping count there. When I go to the pharmacy, they think I've been divorced a million times. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's Michaela McAllister now. Um, you can also email me, um, especially, especially if you're in care and you just need someone to talk to who understands because, you know— a lot of those emotions and, and, and going through the waves, it's really hard to talk to people unless they know what's going on. 
Yeah. I've had so many instances where just a conversation ha has changed my perspective. But um, yeah, you can email me at uh, Michaela.McAllister1208 at Gmail. And yeah. All right. We'll make sure to list that all in the description of this podcast and information with the call of Arkansas mm -hmm. uh, and, and the Adoption Coalition's national. All right. I'm Doc Bryan, and you can find all of my social media at the, my website, thedocbryan.com. At the bottom, there's a social media link bar. You can find me everywhere, literally everywhere. Uh, of course, Doc Talks is a part of Be Frank Network. You can check out all of our podcasts there at befranknetwork.com. Michaela, once again, thank you for being here and telling your story. Thank you for having me. Of course. All right, everybody, goodbye, and we will talk to you next time.